When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to patreon.com. Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. The Founding Fathers are under attack. Who knew in 2009, when I wrote my first book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, that George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and a litany of the other Founding Fathers would be under assault today? Well, I did, and that's why I wrote that book. It's my first, it's still my bestseller, Going out and pick it up whenever books are sold online. The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. You'll really enjoy it. Is Trump going to be taken off the ballot in Colorado permanently? Well, the Supreme Court has heard oral arguments. and This is a really big deal. So I want to talk about it in this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. All right. Well, last week we had three really big news items happen on the exact same day. So it's very easy to lose track of what was going on. A lot of people focused on the Tucker Carlson interview with Vladimir Putin. But on the same day that was released, we also had the Trump v. Anderson arguments before the Supreme Court. That, in fact, was a bigger news story, but the... Carlson interview kind of buried it, but I want to talk about that those oral arguments because they're really important. And there are some things that came out of that that I found to be fairly surprising in some of the arguments that were made. In fact, I bet you Victor Davis Hanson is saying, see, I told you so. The left is just a bunch of Calhounites based on some of the arguments that the essentially the state of Colorado was making in this particular case. So, I've talked about it several times. I thought the decision would be about five to four in favor of Trump. Listening to the arguments, and I sat and listened to the whole thing, I think that it's probably going to be more like nine nothing or eight one. Uh, I, I was a little bit surprised about how the the judges, the three judges on the left, were questioning the attorneys for the state of Colorado and the Secretary of State. I think that they were very skeptical 
of their arguments. So I want to get into these things, and I'm actually just going to read a summary of this from CBS News, which actually did a pretty good job on their uh, reporting of the arguments. They didn't really say anything that wasn't uh, just kind of telling what actually happened, what, what the justices actually said in the response from the attorneys. I'm not going to talk about Trump's attorney uh, because I think, well, he was given more time. But uh, the fact is, the state of Colorado had a big hill to climb. And of course, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we had this amicus brief from several historians, and that was even brought up in these, uh, in these proceedings. In fact, Clarence Thomas brought this up. He said, well, you know, I've read the history of Eric Foner and uh, Shelby Foote and James McPherson. And the attorney for Colorado said, yes, Your Honor, yes, yeah, yeah, we actually have some of them are, are actually on our side on this. And this is true. I mean, James McPherson has signed on to that amicus brief. So this is the history wars. This is why this stuff matters. And you found it all throughout this entire proceedings, which is, again, history does matter. It really shouldn't at this point because, as Kavanaugh pointed out in the proceedings, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything. He's never been convicted of insurrection. No court has said that. In fact, really, even the lower court in this particular situation didn't convict him of insurrection. When this case was appealed to the Supreme Court, which is what I said would happen, the Colorado Supreme Court, uh, I thought that uh, the lower court might rule against Trump. They didn't, in fact. They actually said, well, he can be on the ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court said, no, he's off the ballot because we decided, but we're going to stay this decision until the Supreme Court has issues their decision on the situation. And, of course, that's what's going to happen. I think that Trump's going to be easily left on the ballot. There are several things happening here. And even the lawyers uh, for Colorado said, you know what, this situation is completely different than before the war because the states didn't control ballots. This is where the conservatives ran around saying, you know, if, uh, if the state of Colorado disfranchises Trump, well, that's just like uh, Democrats disfranchising Lincoln. Of course, the states, the, the attorney said, no, that's not how this worked. Uh, that, that, and so, again, all of that was kind of thrown aside. This is, this is why this is just silly. But we have the Lincolnites upset about this at all times. Neoconservative West Coast Drowsians, the left will do these same kind of things. They actually did use, or the Supreme Court justices, Elena Kagan, actually made a statement that would seem to indicate that she thought of this as a very Calhounian position by the state of Colorado, that one state could essentially decide for the rest of the United States who can and cannot be on the ballot. Now, again, this comes down to a particular situation. Do the states have control over who's on the ballot? So, according to Article 1 of the Constitution, again, the states can choose Article 2, actually, of the Constitution. Article 1 and Article 2. If you go back, and let me just go back to these to these sections, Article 1, Article 2. So let's get into the Article 1 argument. And this would be uh, Article 1, Section 4. It says, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the place of choosing senators. So, times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. We know that they have to have the same power over electors for president when it comes to federal elections. 
So the question is, and it says, each state shall appoint such a matter as legislature there by direct a number of electors, right, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives. Uh, the Congress may determine the time of choosing electors on the day in which they shall give their votes, and which day shall be the same th throughout the United States. So they, the Congress can, or the states can appoint electors, and such matters legislature thereof may direct. They can appoint electors. They have control over elections for members of the House and Senate, the time, matter, and place. That's been broadly interpreted that they actually have complete control over who can be on the ballot. Now, for the state, sure. And in fact, this was brought up. Thomas said, well, you know, can you give me an example of a, of a situation where federal office was thwarted by the state? They really couldn't come up with anything. He said, well, we have these state. Yeah, he said, I understand the states. The, the states have complete control over their own elections. Okay, but what about federal elections? Can you give me any examples? And of course, the Murray, who was the attorney, lead attorney for the state of Colorado, couldn't come up with anything really at all. So really, the what the Supreme Court was indicating is that your case is dead. Essentially, you've gotten here. It's dead. There's no way uh, Trump is going to be held off the ballot in Colorado. But again, I found some of the arguments to be really interesting in this. So let me get into some of these, and I'm going to comment as I read through this piece. This is from CBS News. It says, The Supreme Court on Thursday heard oral arguments in a blockbuster case over whether former President Donald Trump can be excluded from Colorado's primary ballot over his actions surrounding the attack on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Now, I will say Trump's attorney said, yeah, we had a riot. We didn't have an insurrection. This was actually an exchange between Jackson and and Trump's attorney, and she said, you know, so um, you're saying there wasn't an insurrection. He said, yes, Your Honor, I'm saying there wasn't an insurrection. Uh, well, can you define, so they got into this definition of insurrection. He said, well, look, it has to be organized. This wasn't organized. There was no organization from the top. This was a riot. It was a nasty riot. It was a violent riot. There were things, you know, property destruction, all this kind of stuff. It was, but it wasn't an insurrection against the government. It wasn't an organized activity. And so Jackson seemed, okay, that's, that's good. I'll, I'll go with that. So essentially what they're also indicating is that they, they don't necessarily agree that this was a strict definition of insurrection. Now, I could also make the case that even in the war, we didn't have an insurrection. We had a war of conquest, the North conquering the South and forcing them to stay in the Union. It was a war for independence, not an insurrection. There was no insurrection against the central authority or against the U.S. government in that they weren't trying to take it over. They had their own government, right? You can have yours. We're just going to have ours. So this is the entire point of the activities after the war anyways. To say, well, that was a rebellion. That was an insurrection. So if it's in a rebellion and insurrection, we still have control over these states, or we can have control over these states. Again, that's a whole other argument in and of itself. But regardless... I seem to th it seemed to be that even the three, you know, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, three leftist judges on the bench, were not really buying the arguments of the state of Colorado. And they seem to be saying, indicating that they don't even know if this is a really an insurrection. I mean, we, we have people saying this is an insurrection, but that's just because they say it is. I mean, they're using the term, but Trump has never been convicted of anything. And the other thing that's important, this is about the primary ballot in Colorado, the Republican primary, the Republican Party. It's not about the general election. It's the Republican primary. So how is it that the state has control over who's on the primary ballot for a party? 
That's the other issue. A party really is a private entity. I mean, we could have a we could form a party and say, yeah, uh, we're going to vote for this person out of our party, and that's who we're going to nominate. Our political party nominates this person. Now, the state of Colorado could eventually say, well, he's he's not going to be on the the general election ballot, and he's not going to be on the general election ballot because he's been convicted of insurrection. Of course, that's not going to happen. Trump's not going to be convicted of insurrection because the there's no way it's going. He just won't. There's no insurrection. We know this. The term insurrection has been thrown around, but it's not. And I think the lawyers made his lawyers made a very convincing case that you cannot accuse him of insurrection, even under federal code, federal law. So there's a lot going on here, and I'm going to continue this as I'll comment on these things as I get through them. The case hinges on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars officials who have sworn to support the Constitution from serving in the government if they engage in insurrection. The provision was enacted in 1868 to prevent former Confederates from holding office and laid mostly dormant for more than 150 years. Now, one thing that Jackson did say, she said, well, you know, this is to prevent the South from rising again. I mean, that statement was just so silly. The South will rise again! You know, so um, it's just a silly statement. It shows you how banal some of this stuff really is. But anyways... A group of voters in Colorado challenged Trump's eligibility for the White House, citing January 6th. A divided Colorado Supreme Court ruled in December that Section 3 meant Trump was ineligible for office and thus could not appear on the state's primary election ballot. The court paused its ruling so Trump could appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. During organ arguments in the case, known as Trump v. Anderson, now let me point out something very important here. The state of Colorado had to appear before the Supreme Court because the Trump attorneys did this the right way. They didn't sue Colorado. They sued the Secretary of State. Now, she's acting as an official of the state of Colorado, but if they had sued Colorado, well, then Colorado could have invoked the 11th Amendment and say, we're not going before this. This is state sovereign immunity. We can do what we want. And that issue here really is state powers. What powers does the state have over this particular situation? Do they have the authority? under the Constitution, to say that Trump cannot be on the ballot. We know up until the late 19th century, as the state of Colorado, the attorney said, states didn't determine this stuff. The parties did. I mean, people could vote for whoever they wanted. They could vote for anybody. The states didn't determine who. The parties set this stuff up. They would pass out ballots, and they would pass out you know, things that uh, would, would get people to vote one way or another, but this was not directed by the states themselves. The states took a stronger role in this as we had elections take on a much more formal tone in the period after the war, and as Republicans in particular wanted to keep some people off the ballot. States too, uh, the Democrats too in some states. They wanted to keep people off the ballot or keep people from voting. They wanted to do both of these things, you see. So the question should be, should the states even have a role in this? I mean, should they even have a role in determining what parties, who, who can be nominated and who can be there? On, I mean, or should we just have ballots, right? I mean, as long as nobody's been convicted of anything, we could, we could sort this out. If Donald Trump is convicted of insurrection, and then can he be on the ballot? Well, because he's been convicted of insurrection, then the 14th Amendment would kick, uh, kick in. Congress, Section 5, would have the role in that. So I'll get into that in a minute, too. Again, during oral arguments in the case, it was Trump v. Anderson lawyers for both sides and the Colorado Secretary of State laid out their, their positions before the nation's highest court. 
Many of the justices seemed skeptical of the idea that states could enforce Section 3 like Colorado did and appeared poised to let Trump remain on the ballot. Here are five key takeaways from the oral arguments. I, I think, again, many of the justices, I think it's going to be 9 to nothing or 8 to 1. I, I don't even know if any of the justices are going to vote against Trump in this particular, or decide against Trump, rule against him in this situation. I just don't think it's going to happen. Not listening to the arguments. I think it's pretty clear. They were very skeptical of the position by the state of Colorado. So we'll start with John Roberts. Roberts calls Colorado voters' position a historical. An exchange between Chief Justice John Roberts and Jason Murray, a Colorado attorney appearing on behalf of the voters who brought the case, seemed to encapsulate the justices' concerns with upholding the Colorado ruling. Quote, The whole point of the 14th Amendment was to restrict state power, Roberts said. On the other hand, it augmented federal power under Section 5. Congress had the, has the power to enforce it. So wouldn't that be the last place you'd look for authorization for the states, including Confederate states, to enforce, implicitly authorized to enforce the presidential election process? That seems to be a position that is at war with the whole thrust of the 14th Amendment and very ahistorical, end quote. Now, let's talk about this quote for a second. The 14th Amendment was designed to put more, quote-unquote, national control into the Constitution. This is the entire argument of 14th Amendment originalism. When you look at it in a vacuum, it appears that it is incorporating the Bill of Rights, that it's going and essentially destroying state powers. It's doing all kinds of things that would strengthen the powers of the central government. It's creating a U.S. citizenship that maybe didn't exist before. Uh, I mean, this is... It's disfranchising people. It's saying who can and cannot vote. So it was designed to give the general government more power and to restrict the authority of the states, essentially to ensure that certain people could not be elected or vote so that the Republicans could control the United States government. The one thing that's not brought up about any of this of the 14th Amendment is the real intent. It wasn't just about centralization of power, which is going to be the result. It was about Republican domination of the government. That's what they were looking for. That's what the, eight, the, the 14th Amendment in 1868 was designed to do. We know it wasn't ratified properly. We know a couple of states rescinded their ratification of it when they figured out what this thing really was. But regardless... We've got a situation where this amendment has been used and abused okay, by the Supreme Court and, of course, by the Congress to thwart the power of the states. In this particular case, you have the attorneys for the state of Colorado and the group that's actually brought the suit arguing a very states' rights position. Colorado can do what it wants here. Colorado has a complete authority over this. And the Supreme Court, I don't know, I don't know about this. Murray pointed to Article 2 of the Constitution, saying it gives states broad power to run their elections. Now, Article 2 of the Constitution, if you go back to the broad power, Article 2. So let's get into Article 2, where he says it gives the states broad power. So, where would he come up with this in Article 2? That would be where the state can appoint electors. This is his point. 
Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature there may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives. That's the broad power. Each state shall appoint in a manner as the legislature there may direct a number of electors. So, the 14th Amendment says that if you are an insurrectionist, you cannot be an elector. The state can appoint electors. This is the broad power he's saying. They get to decide who the electors are. The thing is, this is a primary ballot. It has nothing to do with parties. And of course, at that point, nobody was really thinking about that. Because the states didn't control elections. But the states got to control the elector process. So Murray is saying, well, they have broad power. Roberts countered that the, quote, narrower power you're looking for is the power of disqualification, right? That is a very specific power in the 14th Amendment, and you're saying that it that was implicitly extended to the states under a clause that doesn't address that at all. So you said, I mean, you're looking for this, but you're not really finding it here because these two things are incongruous, right? They just don't work well. You're saying that the power to appoint electors is the same thing as disqualification for a candidate for office. Trump is not running as an elector. He's not running as... Uh, uh, he's not running for House or Senate. He's running for president. Now, again, that was another part of this. Is is the president an office? Um, is it, I mean, what is the presidency? Because it wasn't listed in Article, uh, in, or, in Section 3 of, of, of Amendment 14. It's not there. And in fact, this was brought, even by the left, they said, well, you know, um, we have to be very careful about this because you know, I know that one case it said this, and then debates it said that, but that would leave this thing open to debate, right? I mean, if they weren't really there, there's uncertainty in this and how they were they were arguing this. We can't really come to original intent on this then, even on the Fourteenth Amendment. This was actually by Jackson, if my memory serves me correctly. She kind of got into this, and she said, you know, we we have to be careful about that. Now, Jackson says she's a 14th Amendment originalist, and her position was, I don't know if we can come to an original understanding of this because we had debate, and it was centered on Reverdy Johnson, who was a member of the Congress from Maryland. Johnson, uh, during the war, was... uh, There were some whispers about Johnson being a secessionist, in fact, that he wanted Maryland out of the Union. Um, There was certainly another member of the Senate who thought that, who also favored perhaps secession. That was James Byard of Delaware. But um, regardless, Johnson was not a, a Lincoln supporter at all. At all. He didn't support the Lincoln administration. But he was questioning, well, you don't list president. I mean, and it was said, well, we don't, I mean, president, of course, is he's an officer of the United States. So, so Jackson was saying, well, because there was even a question about it, that would leave open to debate about whether the president is covered under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which was interesting. The Chief Justice warned that a ruling finding states can enforce Section 3 on their own would open the door to a partisan tit-for-tat that would place the presidential election in the hands of a narrow slice of states. He's correct about this. In fact, I talked about this in the podcasts I've done on this particular issue. Uh, Now, again, in some ways, the Calhounian side of me says that's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea for the states to have a role in this. And you know, Calhoun was saying, well, if one state could simply veto the whole thing for the rest, you would have to come to some type of consensus on who would be good, whether it's 
Trump, and look, some of, the, some of the other states would veto Biden, so then we would lose both of these people. There would have to be some consensus among the states who would be good and suitable as a candidate. I mean, states could say no. They could veto any of this stuff. One state, not nah, that person's not acceptable. Nope, that person's not acceptable. Eventually, you would come to people that would be acceptable. Eventually. But you would see a lot of them that would be vetoed. And would that necessarily be a bad thing in some ways? To have... <laughs> To have the states say, no, you can't have that person. I mean, uh, look, Roberts is right. Red states would kick Biden off the ballot. They would say he's not on the ballot. And so we would not have Biden or Trump on the ballot. Uh, What will we get? I don't know. Who will we get? I have no idea. But wouldn't it be good to get rid of bad people? I mean, in some ways, this would be actually a nice thing. If Colorado's position is upheld, Robert said, surely there will be disqualification proceedings on the other side, and some of those would succeed, he said. I would expect that a goodly number of states will say, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot. And for others, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot. And it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election, Roberts continued. It's a pretty daunting consequence. But of course, what they're missing out of that is the Electoral College. You have to have 270 Electoral College votes. If nobody gets that, then it goes to the House of Representatives where they can decide. But the question is, and Kavanaugh pointed out, Trump has not convict, been convicted of any insurrection. You can't keep him off a ballot, even if this was a power of the states, if he's not been convicted of anything. This is true. You, I mean, point is, is it self-executing? They get into that, and I'll get into that later in this article. Murray replied, the fact that there are potential frivolous applications of a provision is not a reason. And then Roberts cut in and said, well, no, hold on. You might think they're frivolous, but the people who are bringing them may not think that they're frivolous. Insurrection is a broad term. And if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the decision. Then that event, then eventually what we will be deciding whether there was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something. And what do we do? Do we wait until near the time of counting the ballots and kind of go through which states are valid and which aren't. Murray said there's a reason Section 3 has been dormant for 150 years, and it's because we haven't seen anything like January 6th since Reconstruction. Insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. His response prompted Roberts to remark that he was avoiding the question, and this is true. I think Roberts was pointing out the situation. I mean, but he's, Roberts is looking at it from an anarchist position, right? We're going to have anarchy. It's going to be chaos. We're going to have all these things. When do we decide? When does the court actually get involved? They kept saying, so you want us to decide. You want us to say who can be on the ballot. You want the Supreme Court to decide who can and can be off, who can and cannot be on the ballot. No, no, Your Honor, that's, uh, well, I mean, maybe, but, you know, they, they were kind of, he, he hemmed and hawed and flipped and flopped. I mean, Murray was not very good at this. Though it was Trump's conduct surrounding the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol led the Colorado Supreme Court to deem him ineligible under Section 3, little time during the two hours of arguments was devoted to the attack and whether Trump incited the mob of his supporters, as the voters allege. Jonathan Mitchell, a Texas-based lawyer who argued in behalf of Trump, denied that the events of January 6th constituted an insurrection, as the Colorado Supreme Court concluded. Quote, for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence, he said. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all those things. 
that did not qualify as an insurrection as that term is used in Section 3. Justice Brett Kavanaugh noted that Congress has enacted a mechanism to prohibit insurrectionists from holding office. The Insurrection Act, which was passed decades before the 14th Amendment, was ratified in 1868. That tool exists, you agree, and could be used against someone who commits insurrection, he told Mary. While Trump is being criminally prosecuted for his alleged efforts to subvert the transfer of power after the 2020 presidential election, he is not charged of violating the Insurrection Act. The former president has pleaded not guilty to the four charges brought against him by special counsel Jack Smith, so he's not even being charged with that. So in order to say this is an insurrection, you have to charge somebody with an insurrection. This is where Kavanaugh said, you know, there's a way to this. You just charge them with an insurrection. If you find them guilty of insurrection, then you could say, well, Section 3 has to apply here. But nobody's doing that. We're just saying it's an insurrection because so therefore Trump is an insurrectionist. It's a really weak argument. And I think that's what the Supreme Court was bringing out in this. After all, I mean, look, I'm going to say all this stuff and I'm sure YouTube's going to have some type of, you know, disclaimer thing under the video when we get there. January 6th wasn't in speech. It's just because they say it is. Without any conclusive proof on anything. Just because they say it. Which is a really sad argument. The main argument advanced by Trump's lawyers is that Section 3 does not apply to him as a former president, nor to the office of the presidency, while he, which he is seeking. Their position rests on two phrases in the clause, Office under the United States and Officer of the United States. Neither the president nor presidency should be covered by the two phrases, Mitchell argued. He also asserted in court filings that the presidential oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution is different from the oath to support it, which is the oath stated in Section 3. You have a list, and president is not on it, Justice Kentani Brown Jackson told Mitchell. She raised a similar point later to Murray, questioning why the drafters of Section 3 do not put the word president in the very enumerated list in Section 3. Acknowledging that the text of the provision may be ambiguous as to whether it covers a president and presidency, Jackson questioned, why should we construe it against democracy? Again, this is important that Jackson brought this up. Jackson brought this up. Jackson's a quote-unquote 14th Amendment originalist. She's saying, I can't even find in here where it would say that the president's covered under this. Jackson later said the history of the 14th Amendment provides the reasons for why the presidency may not be covered by Section 3. Quote, The pressing concern, at least as I see the historical record, was actually what was going on at the lower levels of the government. The possible infiltration and embedding of insurrectionists into the state government's apparatus and the risk that real risk that, real risk that former Confederates might return to power in the South via state-level elections, either in local offices or representatives of the states in Congress. And that's a very different lens. So she's saying, look, the problem is, uh, what's happening is, I think they were concerned about the state elections more than anything else. They were trying to keep the Confederates, former Confederates, out of state offices, and then, of course, going into Congress. Now, there is a point about this. Congress could refuse to seat anybody in the Congress. And what the 14th Amendment did was just say, look, we can do this, and we can pass legislation saying you're an insurrectionist or not. We can enforce this thing or not. And essentially, that's what the Supreme Court, I think, is going to decide. The Congress has complete control over the 14th Amendment, not the states. Now, as I've argued on this podcast, states can interpret the Constitution. They can do it. They take an oath to support the Constitution. State courts are co-equal to federal courts. That position then would put Colorado, the Colorado Supreme Court, in a, in a uh, similar situation with the U.S. Supreme Court. They are equal courts. One's not inferior to the other. This is the whole argument by Virginia leading into Cohen's v. Virginia and 
in that early 19th century period where they said, you know, our state courts are equal with your courts. We're not inferior to your courts. We're not inferior to the central government. We are equal courts. In the 1860s, when the Confederacy was actually in operation, there was no Supreme Court. All the state, all the court decisions were handled by state courts, not the federal court. This is important. The voters had argued in filings that Trump's arguments amounts to a loophole available only to him because he did not serve in, the, in public office before winning the White House in 2016. Trump is the only former president besides George Washington who's never been never sworn an oath to support the Constitution. Mitchell told Justice Sotomayor that his argument that the president is excluded from the phrase officer of the United States is a stronger one, though she pushed back. A bit of a gerrymandered rule, isn't it? Designed to benefit only your client, Sotomayor said. She continued, just so we're clear, under that reading, only the petitioner is disqualified because virtually every other president except Washington has taken to those to support the Constitution, correct? So Sotomayor was skeptical of this thing. Well, you know, this Trump's not an officer. I, I actually said that I think it would cover. I do think it would cover the presidency. But the key thing is you have to be convicted of insurrection. And Trump has not been convicted in any of that. Okay, so... One of the most dominant lines of questioning from the justice involved whether Section 3 is self-executing or whether it requires legislation from Congress to be enforced, and this is important. Trump's lawyers pointed to an 1869 decision from Chief Justice Salmon, Salmon P. Chase in a case involving a criminal defendant named Caesar Griffin. Chase's opinion is considered the first major judicial opinion on Section 3. In it, he determined that the provision was not self-executing and could only be enforced through an act of Congress. But Chase was sitting in a, as a circuit court judge in Virginia at the time. He issued his opinion, so it's not a Supreme Court precedent. doesn't matter. These decisions are still out there. And the Griffin case was spoken of quite a lot, and they kept referring back to this thing. Now, what's interesting is that Cynthia Nicoletti brings this up in her book, Secession on Trial. And um, she says, look, yeah, Jefferson Davis, Chase went to the Jefferson Davis legal team and said, you know what, here's a way out of this. You say Section 3 is self-executing. That's the only punishment he has. We'll basically let him off the hook. But then in 1869, a year later, he says, yeah, well, that's not true. Uh, Section 3 is not self-executing, and uh, we have to have Congress to enforce this thing. Now, why would he flip-flop? Why would he do that? Why would he change gears? Well, very important. He would change gears because when he said this about Jefferson Davis, he was trying to get support for the 14th Amendment. People knew this thing wasn't legally ratified. They were suspicious of it. So if the 14th Amendment would save Jefferson Davis's neck, perhaps Southerners would not put so much pressure on getting rid of it. Also, Salmon P. Chase wanted to be president. But by the time you get to 1869, well, the Congress is retaking control. The Republicans, I'm sorry, is retaking control. I mean, massive control of the general government. And so, what does he have to lose here? Well, I mean, the Griffin case. Yeah, I mean, it's not self-executing. Congress has to do something about this. Jefferson Davis is no longer facing trial. So, nothing's going to happen. Kavanaugh argued that Chase's opinion in the Griffin case is still relevant for determining the original meaning of Section 3. It's by the Chief Justice of the United States a year after the 14th Amendment, he said. It seems to me highly uh, 
probative of what the meaning of or understanding of that language, otherwise elusive language, is. Kavanaugh later said it could be argued that the Griffin's case is the reason why Section 3 had been so seldom used. Until the Colorado Supreme Court ruling, it had never been used to disqualify a presidential candidate. I think the reason it's been dormant is because there's been a settled understanding that Chief Justice Chase, even if not right on every detail, was essentially right. And the branches of the government have acted under that settled understanding for 155 years, he said. And then you get to Elena Kagan. This is that thing where she brings up essentially a Calhounian position. She's arguing against it in this particular uh, oral argument. She said, quote, or let me get the piece. I'll get to her quote in a second. Robert's concerns about state having the power to decide whether a candidate is ineligible under Section 3 were echoed by his colleagues on the conservative and liberal wings of the bench. Justice Elena Kagan, one of the court's three liberal members, seemed to offer a path for the justices to reach consensus in a pair of exchanges with Murray. Quote, maybe put most boldly, I think that the question that, you're, that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States, she said. In other words, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection to be president again is, you know, just to say it, it sounds awfully national to me. So whatever means there are to enforce it, it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. So she's saying, look, Colorado, by doing this, is actually, it's a national situation, and they just can't do that. A state can't do these kind of things. Kagan continued, if you weren't from Colorado, and you were from Wisconsin, or you were from Michigan, and what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? So she's saying, look, this could be a real situation where you have a single state vetoing it all for the rest of the union. And again, that would be Victor Davis Hanson saying, yes, I've been vindicated. This is Calhoun ruining everything. When I did found, I've said it before, I found fascinating the, the attorney, Murray, the attorney for the parties in the state of Colorado, was very much taking a state's rights position in all of this. Well, I mean, we have we can determine our elections. We can determine all these things. This is a federal overreach. If you get involved, it's an overreach, essentially. We don't need to do that. Later, Kagan pointed to a case from 18, 1983 known as Anderson v. Celebrees, in which the court ruled that an Ohio filing deadline for independent candidates was unconstitutional. We said, in fact, states are limited in who they can take off the ballot, and that was a case about minor party candidates. But the reason was that, that one state's decision to take a candidate off the ballot affects everybody else's rights. And we talked about the perverse national interest in the election of candidates for national office. We talked about how an individual state's decision would have an impact beyond its own borders, Kagan said, asking Murray why the same principle shouldn't apply in the Trump case. Murray countered that the Anderson case dealt with an issue under the First Amendment, the Colorado case. He said there was no real First Amendment problem and that a state is just trying to enforce an existing qualification that's baked into our constitutional fabric. Kagan disagreed. Quote, There is a broader principle here, and it's a broader principle about who has power over certain things in our federal system. And within our federal system, states have great power over many different areas. But there's some broader principles that there are certain national questions where states are not the repository of authority. Like, what's a state going to What's the state doing deciding who gets to, who other citizens get to vote for the president? 
So here we have some things. Why can states decide who some states get to vote for for president? Why do we do that? States have a lot of powers, but they really don't have this kind of power. See, at the end of the day, the Supreme Court is protecting centralization. They're protecting that. I don't think there's any dispute that if the Colorado decision worked in the way of Colorado, then you would see other states follow suit. Trump would be disqualified from some states. Some states would probably disqualify Joe Biden. I mean, you're going to see it. They would just say, fine, we're just going to disqualify Joe Biden. And we wouldn't get to 270 electoral college votes. This is true. So that's the end of the article. Some really interesting statements about this thing, about this particular uh, uh, oral arguments. And the text is really interesting. Of course, I listened to it in real time. It's a really interesting debate. And I think at the end of the day, again, it's going to be eight to one or nine to nothing in favor of Trump, that the Supreme Court is going to smack down the states here. The Supreme Court is going to smack down this situation. They're going to say it doesn't, I mean, the 14th Amendment is not really at stake here. This Congress can decide who can and cannot be, and Trump has not been convicted of any insurrection. He's not even been charged with it. And so until that happens, this is moot. All right. Had to get into this because it was really important stuff. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.